A bit lit, celebrating research and creativity of all kinds. Hey guys, it's really good to see you all. This is our first film uh, we've made for a bit lit where we have five people. And it's also our first film, I think, where we've had lots of people gathered together in one room. So there's lots of ways in which this is a new venture for us. This is a film about the brilliant theatre company Edward's Boys, uh, to which you belong. And if we may start uh, just by getting you to introduce yourselves. Hi, so I'm Felix. I'm Jamie. I'm Johan. I'm Ewan. Uh, I'm Will. Perfect. Thank you very much. Um, and we are talking today about a particular, well, I should start by saying Edward's Boys um, specialise in plays from Shakespeare's period, usually plays not by Shakespeare himself. And we're talking today about John Marston's The Fawn. Um, can I ask uh, Felix, would you mind introducing the play for us? Yeah, yeah. Um, so as you say, uh, John Marston was a uh, contemporary of Shakespeare, uh, so in the early modern period. Um, and it was written for a voice company. Um, and it's it's an example of what, what we know, what we call um, disguised duke plays. So essentially the fawn um, is also known as Parasite Pasta, which is an interesting name. Um, but it's um, it's basically about a, a duke who goes from his from his own uh, dukedom in disguise uh, to another court and kind of discovers all sorts of horrible things, corrupt behaviour, horrible people, um, and kind of goes on a, a journey of, of self discovery really through this 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 court. Um, that's basically it in a nutshell. Um, <laughs> have to come and see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's enough to tantalize our audience and then they'll go along and see uh see more about the show and i guess we'll hear more about it in a minute but yeah it's a little bit like boris johnson taking time out from being prime minister um i feel like this story is only going to get creepier as it goes on but yeah disguising himself and going to some other place like washington dc and just hanging out in joe biden's uh white house yeah that's mega creepy i don't think i like the play now i've thought about it like that <laughs> yeah there you go um, okay, now that we've horrified everybody, um, could we just go uh, down a line again, please? And would you mind telling us firstly um, what you're doing in this play and also a little bit more about your experience of working with Edward's Boys? Um, this company will be new for some of our audience, so anything you can do to give us a sense of the kinds of work that you do. Felix has really helpfully reminded us that um, you mostly do plays originally performed by companies of boys, so that's a really helpful way in, I think, to the kind of work you do. But yeah, starting, if we may, with Felix heading down towards Will, um, could you tell us a bit about what you're doing now and your previous work with Edward's Boys? Okay, uh, so I'm playing um, Hercules, who is the uh, the Duke of Ferrara, and he's the Duke who, who goes in disguise, Boris Johnson, if you will. Um, uh, yeah, so I've been rehearsing this since the end of September, September, October time, so quite a while. Yeah, and I've, I've been doing plays with Edward's Boys since year seven, think so i've yeah i've got quite a lot of experience uh, but i'll let you guys talk more about i should say that we're filming this in may i think the film won't go out in in may but we're, we're filming in may 2021 so felix you're telling us you've been working on this play for over six months yeah pretty much yeah <laughs> thank you yeah. jamie sorry i interrupted you no um i'm playing gonzu kone uh one of uh the courtiers um, and I'm an extremely jealous lord, they disguise me. I've been doing Edward's Boys since year seven, like Felix, and I think the best thing about it is when you're younger, you look less masculine, in a way, 
which allows you to play <laughs> the more feminine roles and the more, you know, so like year seven to year nine, I think I only played female roles, I think, because it's just easier for me to pass off as a girl rather than, I don't know, year 12 or year 13, it looks like you and does not look anywhere like a girl. <laughs> Um, yeah, I feel like you're raising all sorts of exciting and interesting questions there about gender and age and androgyny and um, stuff we, we could or could not unpack. We'll see how we go. But yeah, that's really fascinating. So we've got Hercules, the disguised lord. We've got a jealous courtier. I got that right. Um, and then a Johan. Johan, sorry. Yeah. Um, so I'll be playing the Duke of Urban, which is the dukedom that Felix comes in to disguise him. And I am described as a weak lord with a self-admiring wisdom. So this is where um, the plot of the royal family gets drawn in, and that also ties in with uh, Hercules' character as well. Uh, and I've been doing it since, I think, the end of year eight. So not as much as some of the others, but I've had a lot of experience. And the one thing that struck me was how Edward's voice has from all the way down to year seven, from all the way up to year 13. And it's a really nice dynamic, I feel, having to help the younger years through, making sure everything's going well, and us stepping into the big shoes now and leading leading different warm-ups, exercises. And it's really nice working with such a diverse group with all different ages, different characters, and all just merging together as a group. And I find it really, really fun. Yeah, thank you. So again, something that's really distinctive about your company is um, the sheer age range of the boys in the in the company. And that sort of, it's often described as like an apprenticeship structure of where you're all supporting each other at various stages of um, your time at school, your time in learning, your time playing in these weird plays from Shakespeare's time. Uh, so yeah, that's really helpful queuing of some of the work that you're doing. Um, Ewan. Yeah, so I'm, I get the lucky job of playing the character of Herod Frappatore, whose name alone is pretty awesome. And I am, I think I'm described as a sort of braggart. So I sort of come on stage, I think I'm holier than now, I'm the, I'm the most exciting person on stage. I get to have loads so of fun. <laughs> Absolutely. So I'm, I'm coming on and I have my friend here, who he'll introduce himself in a second, and we're sort of a bit of a double act, me and Will. And we just have loads of fun. We both think we're, you know, really great with the ladies. Neither of us actually are. So that's sort of, that's the kind of dynamic we're getting here. And I think it might also be worth mentioning for anyone wondering, it's a very Italian play. So all the names, Herotrapatore, we're based in Ferrara and Urban. So it's Italian cities. And that gives it a lovely sort of sharp and exciting vibe, I think. And uh, the school thing as well is really important because for me, being a part of Edward's Boys, it kind of, it marks the year going by rehearsals. I just, I just love it. I mean, I get to come in on Sundays and after schools and do something with people that I would never normally spend time with in not in my year, not really in my friend group or whatever you might call it. And it's just amazing. And I love it. And it, it, we call it at the school a vertical tutor group almost. It's like you take all the best kids from all the best years and we'll all come together and do a bit of acting. And Ewan as well. Yeah, I, I get stuck on at the bottom just to fill time. But it, it's really good fun. I think it's something that just, it, it's quite unique. And I think that's why we all love doing it. So I think everyone's boys is awesome. 
Yeah, it's great. Herod Frappatore sounds a bit like a Starbucks drink, doesn't it? Um, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So it's great fun from the get-go, really. Yeah, and actually the names in this play, I mean, this is something that's kind of true of lots of early modern plays, but they're sort of mad, aren't they? They're bonkers, kind of yeah. combination of classical and, as you say, Italian. Um, and then other names which seem to describe characters in certain ways, like describe something about them in a very yeah. particular way. Um, yeah. Will, I feel like you've already been half introduced, but introduce yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I play Nymphadoro, which translates to woman lover. Uh, my character certainly loves women. I'm not sure if they love him. but uh, And I, as you had said, I uh, stick around with Herod a lot. I'm uh, much younger than him, though. We're thinking about 18-ish, and he's more in his 30s or something. Maybe 40s. <laughs> so, yeah, the, the interesting thing for me with this part is, uh, as Jamie said, I've... I've played a lot of female parts uh, in the company. So this is actually my first real male part. So that is, is interesting to try that, uh, try that out different, different style. So, yeah. yeah, thank you. I guess you're also cluing us into the fact that this is a play which is partly about male sex pests, for want of a better term. Um, kind of the male, the unwanted pursuit of women by men. And I, um, I guess, Will, you're telling us, you know, if you've been doing this play a few years ago, you might have been playing the female roles. I don't know for, this is a question for any of you, but um, does moving between these different roles, whether that be between different genders or any other, just, just seeing the play from any kinds of roles point of view. Um, yeah. Uh, what sort of questions does it provoke around the way in which people are attracted to each other and the kind of power play that that, that, that involves? It's a big first question, sorry. <laughs> I think when it comes to switching between the roles, I think it you, we don't really pay much attention to it, you playing a girl. So we just see it as another role. You see it as you're not, oh, you, the, the idea, yes, you're wearing a wig, yes, you're wearing a dress, yes, you may have makeup on. But at the end of the day, it's another role. It's like I'm playing a pilot. I know I've never played a pilot. But um, <laughs> it, 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 you're just going to another role. You're not yeah. asking us, you're just doing a job. You're doing, you're acting, essentially. So I don't think a lot of us really think of it more than that when it comes to it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's become a bit of a cliche with us, but we always just say, you know, it's just a role. Like, it's just, you know, it's just another role. You're playing a woman. Yeah, I think um, it, it does come down to, we all, everyone loves to think there's not, if you play a girl, you have to walk a certain way, you have to talk a certain way, you have to dress. Um, it's not, I mean, you know, you put on the wig and nobody can tell the difference, it's fine. So we all just go out there and we do it and people get it and it's, I think it's a lovely thing to way, way of exploring gender, and that's why these plays are so good when they're done by boys' companies, because it's it just adds that extra layer of, well, here's a man dressed up as a different Jew, or here's a boy dressed up as a girl, and he's in love with another girl, or he's in love with a boy who's dressed as a girl. I mean, it's chaos, and that's what makes it so fun. Yeah. And interesting to watch as well. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I mean, one thing, I've been watching Edward's boys' plays now for... Um, a terrifyingly long time. Let's not swap notes on your ages and how long I've been watching Edward's Boys because that'd be really embarrassing. Um, but um, often it's the performance of older men, which involves as much dragging up, for want of a better term, self-consciousness about your body and how you hold it, how you move through through a space. I'm speaking to someone who's recently gone into my 40s. Like I say, let's never talk about that ever again. Um, but yeah, you know, I, um, it's really fascinating watching the portrayal of any kinds of characters when there's a difference or there isn't a difference. Um, but I suppose my, 
what, what I was really wondering about is just how um, oddly dark plays are from this period, particularly around the idea of um, one character fancying another, kind of the desire from one character to another. And you've told us that um, Ewan and Will are playing these two characters who are spending a lot of time on, on stage kind of nudging each other and checking people out. And I just wonder, like, in some ways that feels like a very distinctive um, way in which all of us live our lives anyway. We will live in a, a world of, of desire. Um, but these plays seem really fascinated by that as a kind of social problem. And I wonder how that feels just to be playing that, playing that and playing with it. <laughs> yeah. so, I think it, uncomfortable sometimes is simple because, well, everyone loves to laugh and we try and make it really funny, but we find that it tends to be the more we read a play and the more work we do, the more cruelty there is underneath it and the more nastiness, the more kind of actually not great stuff going on here that as... Um, maybe a contemporary audience would have got it a lot more than a modern audience, or maybe it's the other way around, I'm not sure. But it, it does sometimes feel like your character, especially when you're playing somebody who's, I mean, my character lies a lot about how many women he's, he has sex with. He's constantly talking about how he's just come back from a, a four-night binge, or whatever you want to call it, and he comes staggering onto stage, and it's, it's all lies, it's all fabricated. And in reality, I'm quite a sad old man, probably, really. And that's, is that a cruelty in my character? Or is it just something to laugh at? I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very, very cruel. Definitely, I think Ewan's got it there. It's a, a particular example is the character of Garbetta, um, who's a woman in the play. And we found her, her character just be this really sad character. She's, she's stuck in a bit of a, a marriage with a very old man who, and it's it's not not a loving marriage or anything. And then my character uh, takes advantage of her because she's she's uh, in that position, and it's yeah, it's quite quite cruel cruel situation. Really. And yet, particularly when you're performing that role, you can't be stood there thinking, "Oh, this is really cruel." You kind of got to engage with the character, delighting in that, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Religion. Yeah. So um, the language we've used so far about this play, we've described it as funny, uh, chaotic, and cruel, which I feel like we've sold a lot of tickets just with that alone, right? I think that's, we've done a good yeah, job. Yeah, that was Um <laughs> Was one of you coming in there? Sorry. Oh, no, no, you carry on. It sounded um, like you had a question to ask, but... I did, but I thought someone was coming in. I don't want to cut anyone off. So. <laughs> um, it's uh, it, reading the body language uh, and hearing the voices through Zoom is always really complicated. Sorry, we'll be doing that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I suppose a disguised duke play, a play in which we've already made this terrible analogy that was all my fault about um, Boris Johnson. But, you know, that sort of cues us up to expect a play about, about politics. But actually, this is a play which is really about, um, about desire. You know, it's not just that there's a subplot about that, but even the Duke coming to the other court is motivated by figuring out what his son is up to, who's going to end up getting married to, to who. So it's not just sex, it's also marriage, which feels like it's the focus of this play and the, the politics all, all seem to be kind of focused on that and not on more kind of traditional take on politics. Have I got that right? Is that, what, what's your sense of, of what the play is about? That yeah. Is a leading question. <laughs> 
Yeah, I'll throw this. Um, no, I, I think that's exactly right. Um, actually, if you look at all of the kind of devices of these characters, it's all to do with love, you know, like the perversion of love. Um, Herod's, you know, lying about sleeping with these women. Nymphadora doing the same and not actually sleeping with these women and people sleeping with their brothers' wives and, you know, everything is, you know, it's all messed up, but it's all to do with love. Um, and at the end, they all get their, their reckoning. Um, but yeah, all to do with love. And and the character of Hercules, um, just talking about women and, and our relationships with women, he, um, as you say, he, he comes to the court, but his his initial intention, um, or so he says it is, um, is to, to come in and, and marry the, the Duke's daughter. And he's, Hercules is, I think, 65. Um, and the Duke's daughter, halfway through the play, is celebrating her 15th birthday. So, and, yeah. And there's another character, um, you were talking about Garbetza. Um, she's, well, we don't know how old she is. Um, but her husband is is really, really quite old. And, and, you know, it depends on how much you want to play that in the actual production. But all these, like, intricacies with kind of love and relationships and women, it's, it's all really interesting. I mean, it's it's kind of quite horrible and, and shocking. Also funny, but that makes it more cruel and, you know. Yeah, so it's, it's really interesting. I don't know that anyone has anything to add with Travis My relationship with Don Zucconi and Donna Zoya is I find really interesting because it's obvious by my language that I do love in some sort of way Donna Zoya, but I love her to the point where I'm scared that she's going to leave me. And I, I'm more scared of the idea that she'll leave me than she'll stay with me. And I, I want her to stay, but I'm scared of her. It's so hard to explain. I think that's so important about this relationship I have with her because usually marriages are quite, relationships are quite simple. It's like boy loves girl, etc. <laughs> what? But I, I I've never, I've never seen in any of these plays a relationship, relationships between I don't know Garbetta and um, Amoroso. They're a real dynamic. Exactly. It's so the way they present it is so interesting. And the way the characters react is so unique. I think. I feel. It's funny. Most of the plays we do haven't been performed since. 1603 or, or whatever this with this play we're lucky but well, lucky-ish in that there there was a, a production done at the, at the national in the i think it was the 80s um and we've you know there's a lot that's been written about the play and stuff um we've been convinced over our as you say six months six months of working together that actually well i don't want to say that people have got it wrong but that <laughs> well you we know we've just come we've just kind of come to a different conclusion about it um Lots of people have said how the play is kind of light and funny and yeah, it is funny. Is it light? No, it's really quite cruel and it's horrible and it's uncomfortable. Maybe that's just us being cynics. I, I don't know. But but we really feel there's a tangible sense of like proper, proper cruelty in this play, um, especially from characters who you wouldn't expect to be cruel, maybe. Um, yeah, but it's no. There are some moments which are, are really, really twisted. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's quite interesting. Adding on to what Felix was saying, we have so many different dynamics of love, and my purpose would be to convince my daughter to marry Hercules. But because of the age dynamic and such a disbalance of it, I, I want, I want them to get together to get married and 
um, be part of Hercules's dukedom. But once I say that to my daughter, it provides motivation because I've barred her from love with this young lover. She is then therefore motivated to get with that young lover, to pursue that young, fruitful love. Whereas otherwise she'd be marrying such an old, senile man. So it's good to see the different motivations of love just because I barred her from doing so. Yeah, this is all really interesting. Um, I mean, there are kind of two things coming out of that for me. One is that I love the idea that there was a production in the 1980s, because I guess to you guys, the 1980s probably feels as historical as 1603. And um, even though I lived through the 1980s, in some ways to me, I'm more aware of how dated the 80s feels when I look at someone like Madonna in the 80s, for example. Like, I don't, I don't have the equivalent of Madonna in 1603, and sometimes it feels like it's quite hard to sense the datedness of a play from 1603 in a way that's really obvious when I watch a Madonna video, a pop video or something like that. Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah, the kind of the retro nature of it, the, the age of something from the 20th century, which has been recorded, I have a very different relationship with that oldness compared to the play. Yeah, yeah, sorry, sorry. It almost doesn't feel old. No. It just feels like a different world. In that you have to break into it, but once you're in there, it doesn't feel like you're dealing with something that was written so long ago, and that's because nothing has really changed. Yes. It's the way people think, the way people interact with one another, the way people want things and lose things, the way people are driven is fundamentally the same. And these writers were so aware of the way people thought that that just stand out. And that means that once you've sort of broken the back of the language, you can really get into this. And that's when you start seeing the, the social commentary in it, not to get all English literature on this, but you start you start to see what they're saying about it, don't you? And it's, bring that on, bring it on. <laughs> and you start seeing what the... The, the writers were saying these incredible things, profound commentary that are still just so true today. And that's why it doesn't feel as old, I think, because they were so right even 400 years ago and they're still right today. But also it's just, you know, it's just very funny as well. Yeah. They're <laughs> trying to get away from it. It's funny, but right? yeah, it's, it's, it's funny. yeah it's, it should be good. Sorry, we're kind of putting people off here. It's cruel, it's horrible. It's, but yeah. I think um, I think cruel and horrible does also pull an audience. Like I said earlier, I think you were I think you were right. Um, I mean, it's it's a play which is using cruelty and horribleness to ask really interesting questions about power dynamics. I think is what you're you're saying to us, um, rather than just come along and watch a horrible thing. I don't, that's not the message you're giving me at all. So don't don't worry about that. Um, yeah, that's really interesting, and it's it's kind of fascinating actually talking to the five of you that you're all playing male characters with very different kinds of desires in the play, um, desires in relation to women who they'll never get anywhere near. Like, you know, some of your characters are almost faking a, a sexual CV, um, like a, a sexual resume of some kind. On the other hand, you've got characters who are married to women but have a troubled relationship there. And then you've got a character who wants to marry their daughter to someone powerful. So there are all kinds of different desires, not, not all of them sexual, but, but connected to, to women. So I guess I, I kind of want to return to that question I was asking earlier about what that feels like to embody those sorts of, of roles, in this case, kind of male roles um, with, with such different relationships to both desire and to, and to female characters. <laughs> Makes you question, you know, where am I? an arrogant person, where am I trying to deceive other people? You know, it does, 
I think whenever you put yourself into the shoes of a new character and you start trying to become them, it always becomes a self-respective thing as well. I think that's always fun. It's always interesting, you know, when you sat down thinking about when I stood in the sixth form common room being a bit of a braggart, and then how does that translate to being a, a genuine braggart on stage? And I think it, it same about the dynamics of love as well. It feels like I want to be known as somebody who has sex, and I think Will actually wants to have sex, and that's a very different thing, isn't it? <laughs> that's quite funny. <laughs> I think the most you used to talk about what it feels like to put yourselves in the shoes of these characters. The brilliant thing that Marston does here is that they're so complex. I feel this, unlike any other play I think I've done, the characters are so complicated and so real. And because they're quite different, we're not all cruel, horrible people. We can really <laughs> question, <laughs> we can really question why you can also understand it to a certain extent because you've got their text you know what they're saying you're learning how to say it and it's becoming you but i just find it so interesting to put yourselves in the shoes and to really understand these intricate and complex emotions thoughts and feelings because that's that's what the text can provide us which i find is quite spectacular in a way thank you that's really helpful and jamie's pulled me on the next question i wanted to ask really which is We've discussed the various eccentricities of this particular play. Um, how does this relate to earlier plays that you've done from this period? Does this feel like it's a kind of continuity from earlier things you've done, or does it stand out from, from earlier work? So, yeah, so we have a nice parallel here, because uh, two years ago, we did The Malcontent, uh, which was written by Martin, and it's another much more famous example of a disguised Duke play. Um, so, Duke Altafront goes in disguise to another court as Malevole and he really is like a nasty piece of work and he's kind of really twisted um, and it's very psychologically complex um, and we, so we've naturally kind of drawn parallels between Malevole and Hercules and in some ways I guess they're similar but in many more ways they're very different because well we've talked a lot about performance I mean you kind of would putting on a play um, but performance within a play um, and the way that, that Hercules um, puts on different performances and kind of, well, I mean, it's called the fawn, isn't it? So he's, he's fawning on people, but fawning on people in different ways um, and, and trying to work his way through these people to get what he wants. But at the same time, he's not sure what he wants and he doesn't know where to go and he doesn't really know why he's there. So it's, it's much, I think specifically with this play, it just feels so much more, more complicated, more fraught, more complex, definitely from my perspective. I don't know, I mean, you guys might have different experiences, uh, but it's kind of linked with what Jamie was saying about his character. Um, and I, well, of course, I'm not saying that the malcontent isn't complicated, isn't complex in its, in its own ways, but we've just found that this is, yeah, that this is, it's just so many layers and so many things going on. Uh, it's really fascinating. Yeah, great, thank you. How about the others? The plays of you done. Yeah, I think we did one, Summer's Last Will and Testament, and that was another play where there was loads of excitement and if you just sort of looked at the script, went, oh, no, no, no. oh this is a great play, how exciting, how fun, how 
jovial, but then the second you really start to look at it, it's very similar in, in that that underlying cruelty just starts creeping out. And these characters all become self-obsessed sort of humans who actually have vices and desires, and they're not just lines on a piece of paper. So, and so and so Testament was great because it was all about power plays. It was all about power. And that was, you know, um, really, really brief crazy. It was a, Summer was a human being and he's dying and he's going to give all his possessions and all his dominion as his kingdom to somebody else. And obviously the other characters in the play were winter, autumn, spring. So you can sort of see where it's going. And it, it was quite ironic because it's inevitable from the beginning that if winter dies, we all know, if summer dies, we all know that the successor is autumn. But throughout the whole play, it was how does, how does that come to be? How does that come about? And it was all power play. And that was a really fun one to watch. So, you know, buy the DVD. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I should say, under, under this film, anyone watching this who would like to buy any DVDs from Edward's Boys, if you look under, under the film on our website, abitlit.com, that's me plugging uh, my, my, my project, sorry. But if you look down there, you'll see a link to your website, uh, which I think is edwardsboys.org, but there'll be a link, as I say, below the film, and you can go and uh, get an extraordinary library, an unparalleled library of plays from this period, which no other theatre company uh, is performing. Um, and yeah, that's a really lovely set of parallels there. So The Malcontent, uh, Summer's Last Will and Testament, Malcontent written by the same writer as the form John, John Marston, and I think about the same time period as well, Summer's Last Will and Testament written 10 years earlier and feels in some ways like a world apart in terms of its approach to, to playwriting, much longer um, speeches, uh, often thought of as, uh, by academics as being kind of unperformable and you guys proved all of that wrong really brilliantly. Let's um, yeah. what's come in. We've got a character of Spring, but it is heavy. It's heavy because we were, we were, you know, when we said we're doing some of Last Moon and Testament, lots of kind of academics were like, oh God, really? Why would you do that? Um, but actually they, you know, they came along and I'd like to think they enjoyed and themselves very much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, what was that? No, nothing. Oh. I just I just heard my name and everyone fell about laughing, which I'm used to. That's how it happens on my day-to-day -day life. But I just wondered, wondered what particularly had happened. Yeah, I mean I was one of the people I'm I'm really suspicious when academics say this play is unperformable because I just think, how do you know? Go and try. <laughs> and um so I was not one of those people saying that, and I was delighted to see. But the people who do say things like that got proved wrong by how brilliant it is. Um, I'm going to move towards wrapping up. Is someone trying to get in again? Yeah, can I suggest a question? Yeah, so for the benefit of people listening, this is the disembodied voice of Edward's Boys director, Perry Mills, beaming down as if as if God is speaking. Perry, please. <laughs> as if. I don't want to do it. Right. Um, how about the way that women are presented? in the form. We've had a lot about the men and how they think about women. Yeah. But maybe the lads could say something about the way that women are presented. Yeah, thank you, Perry. So guys, this is an entirely unprompted thought that's just occurred to me, but I wonder about how the women are presented uh, in this play. Uh, any thoughts there? I think, so my wife is Donna Zoya and she to me is, unlike a lot of females you will see, in this time period of drama, because she is so resolute. She is resolute Donna Zoya, I think is how she's described. She's so, not masculine her, like, 
um, characteristics, but she's so driven. She's so emphatic. The way she talks to me at the end of the play is cruel, but joke. It's oh, it. I, I probably wasn't <laughs> wrong with her. I'm not sure because words. she's so powerful. She's not a damsel in distress. She's yeah. what you'd call almost a modern woman in many ways. She's very yeah for a time. In, yeah, independent. Um, you know, yeah. she says what she she wants to say, and she does stuff. She's active, loyal. You know, she she gets her revenge. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's that's a great example. But also, there's there's Dulcimer, uh, the Duke's daughter, whom Hercules goes to to, to marry. Um, who's witty, intelligent. She's quick. She's sharp. Um, she's always taking the piss out of her her dad. She's, you know, she's she's so on it. It's really, it's really modern because, um, you know, in a lot of the plays, there's a tendency for women characters just to be kind of, I don't know, like prostitutes or old women or, you know, and it's it's really, it's really difficult for us really to come good. to terms with that. But yeah, in this play, um, Zoya, Dulcimer, as I've said, uh, Philokalia as well is, a, is another woman. She's like Dulcimer's confidant. Um, and she's yeah the, the same. She's witty. She's intelligent. She's experienced. You know, it's yeah. And I think one of the reasons why we were asked to do this play, play in particular was because of of the women in this play and and how different they are really. I don't know where that yeah. Is. Yeah. Okay. So strong, strong, and actually, you look at this play and you can say, well, who's the hero? Who's the villain? Let's be real, there are no good guys in this play. I mean, I don't think there's many of the blokes in this play do something that's really honourable, really fair or righteous. But then a lot of the women, when all the men are guffawing and laughing at the at the comedy that's taking place, the women sat there embarrassed, knowing, intelligent, and actually they sometimes they stand separated because they're not taking as much part because they actually understand that it's all rather base. And I think that's it's a bit of a proof that, you know, we're all sort of self-encouraging all the guys who kind of fall in on one another and then the women just get withdraw further and further as they realise how awful everyone is and you get some really knowing speeches and actually under- they actually understand what's taking place and what it is, really. Yeah. Yeah, and I should say as well, I presume this production is being performed um, as commissioned by the John Marston Research Project, which again we'll put a link to underneath the film, um, and the play is being freshly edited by Clement Manus. Um, and it'd be really exciting to think that that edition will get to respond to the kinds of work you've been doing. Um, my final question, if it's okay, is, um, well, firstly, just a tiny question or a question you can answer very quickly, which is, are we in your rehearsal space right now? It looks like we could be in the rehearsal space. Um, yeah. yeah, so whenever whenever Perry is invited to talk about the work that Edward's boys do, he, he's always very um, self-effacing about it, as I'm sure you can imagine. And he always says, well, we just sit around a desk and discuss the play and that sounds great and fascinating and I'd, I'd love to hear about that as well but um I wonder if you might tell us just to wrap up what it means to start staging either this play or any of the plays you've been involved in that that moment in which you move away from you talked earlier about the kind of English lit approach the text approach once you start actually embodying it performing it staging it do things change do things shift can you tell us a bit about that I think when we started off we had our zoom rehearsals so we had <laughs> That was quite a barrier for, <laughs> at the start, dealing with all the technology problems and stuff. But as we started breaking down the text, we 
we saw where it would make sense for us to block it. And so when, once we got back into the space and stuff, once we started trying things out, we had a general idea of where everything was going to go. And then we actually held, hit a block at the final scene, I think it was, where we had a staging issue where it didn't quite feel right. And then we made a simple change to make sure that the, the Dukes, for example, are on either side and then everything started making sense. And once you've broken down that language, that barrier, you understand what the characters' motions and movements are, it becomes quite clear where they should be on stage and how they interact with characters. So I think it comes quite natural because we spend a lot of time on the text and trying to break it all down so that it makes sense and we can tell the story through the staging as well. Great, thank you. Anyone else want to add anything to that or is that? The writers from this period aren't afraid to throw every character on stage at once sometimes. So it does leave you sometimes wishing you had a stage the size of a football pitch, but it makes it a really fun challenge to find out who's going to be stood shoulder to shoulder with who and who's going to go anywhere near them. And I think we are really lucky that we're able to figure that out pretty much instantly because we spend so long just reading it. And once you've read it over and over, you just know who your character likes, who your character doesn't like, who your character would try and get on with, who your character's going to try and flatter. The dynamics on stage, you know, as in real life, they kind of sort themselves out. If you can figure out what your character's desires are, then you're going to know where they're going to want to stand in a space. So we like to think that sometimes the plays block themselves. It was great. This, uh, it was this Sunday. We had kind of one of our first rehearsals back um, and it was kind of the whole cast and we got together in the space, obviously wearing masks and stuff. Um, but we, uh, and we managed, I don't think, we didn't plan on running a load of it, but we ended up just, just running a load of it and it was, I don't know, it was probably not just me who thinks this, but you know, it felt really good. It was, it was great, you know, we just kind of, it felt like we were back and, and doing play again and, you know, working things out and, yeah. I think Mr. Mills described it as like almost fitted together like a jigsaw. Like the blocking didn't seem, it didn't, because I expected, we'd been blocking it on Zoom, I expected when we'd eventually get up on its feet, it'd be really, uh, yeah, we know where we're going, uh, but it would feel a bit off because it'd been so long over Zoom, it didn't really make sense. But it just fits together like that and we just moved through it quite so quickly and it just all seemed to flow really easily, which was a nice surprise. Making ourselves sound like professionals. So yeah. It's still hot. It doesn't sound. I'm cool with that. You guys are the celebrities of uh, early modern studies for sure. So uh, I'm very happy if you make yourselves sound like professionals because um, no one, no one. <laughs> No one on the planet knows this period as well as you do via these particular combinations of plays. Like no one else has staged this combination of plays before since those theatre companies were doing it 400 years ago. So um, it's really exciting to get all of this information from you. I'm just going to summarise really briefly where we've got to. This is a funny play, it's chaotic, it's cruel, and it feels a little bit like the whole conversation has been around the, the way the play plays with that very tension between funny, uh, funny and cruel. Um, it's a play which is really interested in characters who fake things about themselves, whether that be as simple as disguising yourself as someone else, but also boasting about pretending um, things about yourself. Um, I love the idea that this is a play with no good guys in it, particularly from a kind of gendered perspective, no male good guys in it. Um, 
a play with these massive group scenes where the blocking sort of sorts itself out once you think through where your character's loyalties are. Um, that really fascinates me. The last two things I shall say are firstly, good luck with the production, which um, I'm really excited to see. And again, we'll put the details of the production up on the website. Um, and then the last thing I'll say is you very kindly asked if it was okay to eat shortbread during the making of this film. So I just want to, I want to pay tribute to the very polite way in which you have eaten shortbreads. Very important. Like there are other desires other than the ones that we've talked about in this film and shortbread is a very legitimate form of, uh, form of desire. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you very much, disembodied Perry Mills voice. That was amazing. Um, and uh, good luck. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much.